Well, good morning, everybody. It's a big weekend. I know uh, many of you have tomorrow as a day off school or work uh, as our nation uh, remembers and acknowledges Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his significant contribution to the civil rights movement. Uh, I have mentioned before that Dr. King said that he got many of his ideas for nonviolent resistance from the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, this great talk that we are learning about together as a church. Uh, there will be a lot of mention of Dr. King tomorrow at assemblies around the country and in the media about his role as a great civil rights leader. But what often gets lost or forgotten in our day is the fact that Dr. King was a follower of Jesus, that he was a pastor, and that uh, it was from Jesus that Dr. King and many others saw a clear message of the dignity and value of every human being. Today is also, in some calendars, Sanctity of Life Sunday, on which we acknowledge the sanctity of all of human life, every ethnicity, every age, every person, and especially on this day, the life of the unborn. And we rejoice in the progress that has been made. Abortion rates have fallen dramatically over the last 30 years and continue to do so. Civil rights has advanced. Uh, we've come a long way but we have much farther to go. And that is why we pray and we work for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's say a short prayer together and then we'll get to the topic of the day. God of glory, you are the author and sustainer of life. Every human being ever conceived bears your divine image. Forgive us the times we have treated anyone as less than a work of your creation as less than a bearer of your image, as less than a child of your love. Help us to see as you see and to love as you love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to welcome uh, those of you just joining us now via video feed from our sanctuary. Good morning to you, as well as a lot of people worshiping online and listening by radio today. Maybe you uh, played it safe with this morning's snowstorm and glad that you're able to connect via technology. Uh, why do snowstorms always happen on Saturday? You know, pastors uh, hate Saturday snowstorms, uh, but we're not alone. You know who else hates Saturday snowstorms? School kids and teachers. <laughs> we have different motives, uh, but we all want that snowstorm to happen on Monday. But glad that you made it uh, here today, either in person or online. Glad you're here. We are working our way through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, paragraph by paragraph. And today we come to a section that's kind of sensitive and close to the heart. We're going to look at the words of Jesus on divorce and remarriage. If any of you did not know what today's topic was, and just hearing the topic named has raised your anxiety. Uh, maybe you're in a marriage that's struggling and you'd rather not think about that right now. Maybe you grew up in a home that was impacted by divorce and the topic creates some sadness still to this day. Maybe you are divorced and maybe you are divorced and you were part of a church that treated divorce like some kind of unforgivable sin and you were treated like second-class citizens. Some of you knew what the topic was today. You were looking ahead, and you knew this topic was coming, and you were tempted to skip church today, and I'm so glad that you didn't. Thanks for pushing through when it would have been easier to avoid. It's a difficult topic, 
And we have a lot of work to do this morning because we need to bridge a 2,000-year cultural gap to be sure that we are hearing the words of Jesus the way he intended his words to be heard. To make sure that we are hearing the words of Jesus the way the followers of Jesus in the first century there on that mountain heard the words of Jesus. It's going to take some work uh, this morning, but it is well worth it. The words of Jesus bring clarity and hope and healing. So here's the context. We're, we're in that section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is redefining what it means to be a good person. And he started this section by talking about anger. We looked at that two weeks ago. And a really good person isn't just someone that manages uh, to avoid killing someone, though that's a really good starting place. A good person is, some, is someone who never ceases to will the good of another, even when they're harmed. A good person has a heart of forgiveness. And then he goes on to talk about sexuality. We looked at this last week on, on Ice Storm Weekend. We looked at this one. A uh, good person is not just someone who manages to avoid uh, the sin of physical adultery, but someone who has learned with God's help to subordinate appetite to what is truly good. And now he talks about what is a good person when it comes to divorce. And I want you to hear the actual words of Jesus that he spoke. And then we'll talk about the cultural context and why this, why this matters. So uh, listen as I read to you the words of Jesus. Would you please stand here in the sanctuary as well as I, as I read to you the words of Jesus as recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, just two verses, verse 31 and 32. Listen to the words of Jesus. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would once more be our teacher and our guide. Open these words for our understanding and our use. Protect us this morning from misinterpretation. Be for us once more the one who came full of grace and truth. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, this teaching of Jesus raises all kinds of questions. People say, well, I, I thought adultery was when a, a married person has an affair. So why would getting a divorce from my wife, which makes us both single, make her a victim of adultery? And why would marrying a divorced woman, who's now legally single, uh, make me an adulterer? Jesus is saying these things for really good reasons. Jesus is brilliant at reading his culture and speaking to it. And so we need to understand his culture. Uh, notice here that Jesus is addressing only men. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks to a crowd that includes men and women, but there are a couple times in this great talk that he addresses the men only. He did this last week when we looked at uh, lust, and he does it today when we're talking about divorce. Why does Jesus do that? Why does he address only men? Is it because uh, men need more help in these areas? That women are relational superior and don't need as much instruction? Is that it? What do you think? How many are afraid to answer? 
Who said yes? Was that my wife? <laughs> she did. Oh, boy. <laughs> While women may be superior to men in many areas, I don't think this is why. I think the reason he addresses men is because in his culture, only men had the power, the authority, the legality to get a divorce. Only men could get a divorce, and so Jesus addresses men. If you were a woman in the ancient world, your husband could divorce you anytime for any reason. He could just leave you with the kids without any money at all and uh, to fend for yourself. And in that culture, if you manage to survive, if you manage to get any money at all, probably not, but if, you, if your sons could work and bring in money, or if you won the lotto or something, that husband could come back at any time and reclaim you and your kids and, that, and your money. So uh, no man is going to marry you if husband number one is lurking out there somewhere and could sweep in at any point and take you back. <clears throat> Divorced women really had no options in the ancient world. So the law of Moses put in some protections for women to regulate divorce. These are the words of Moses from Deuteronomy. And again, Moses, this is thousands of years before Jesus. But this is the law to which Jesus is referring right now. Uh, the words of Moses, Deuteronomy 24.1. <clears throat> if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. <clears throat> divorce was very common in the world of Moses. He did not create divorce. It was out of hand, and so uh, it really damaged women who had no means to support themselves in that culture. And so the law of Moses establishes a process for divorce. It's like Moses is saying, look, you're going to get divorced anyway, so let's at least regulate it. Let's put a process in. has to be something now in writing, a certificate. The certificate has to say the reason for the divorce. The man has to give back the dowry if one came in the marriage from the woman's family. That dowry's got to be returned. And the certificate gives her permission to remarry somebody else. He cannot come back and claim her again. The law, or the Torah, essentially said that women are not property or animals, but persons with rights. Again, this may be hard to believe, but those were radical ideas in Moses' time. We have to remember that some of the laws of the Old Testament that to us sound commonplace or may even sound backwards were in their day giant steps forward in preserving human rights in the ancient world. But as human nature is, people began using these baseline standards, these minimum requirements as their definition of goodness. So the thinking went like this. Well, the bad guys are the guys who divorce their wives without giving them a certificate of divorce. So as long as I give my wife a certificate of divorce, I am good. I am righteous. I am in keeping with the laws of the Bible. And Jesus wants to broaden our definition of goodness. Jesus here has not been giving new rules and regulations about any of these topics that are addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. He's describing the way a truly good person would feel and think and act. A kingdom kind of husband, a really good man, would not just follow the minimum required by law. 
a good man will be more concerned about the well-being of his wife than he is about himself. In a culture where divorce left women destitute, a good man will seek her welfare above his own. Jesus is not giving rules and laws and regulations. He is illustrating what a kingdom heart of love looks like. Real love seeks the good of others. Real love seeks the good of others. That's the spirit of this. Having said that, people still want to know, yeah, 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 love, 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 Jesus, 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 but still want to know, but, but, but what are the rules, the biblical rules regarding divorce? Is divorce ever permissible? And if so, when? And can somebody remarry? And what are the biblical grounds for divorce? The clearest biblical grounds for divorce is adultery, Old and New Testaments. To this clear standard is usually added abandonment, abuse, and neglect. Now we have to be really careful with how those are defined, but abandonment, abuse, and neglect were defined even by the rabbis as being a serious violation of the marital vows and grounds for divorce. And there are some examples in the law of Moses that speak to this indirectly in their protection of women. For example, if a man took a second wife or a third wife, which was allowable in that day, by law he still had to provide and love for the, uh, for the first wife. Uh, the first wife can't be left out if more wives are added. And if the man did not keep his promise to provide and love for wife number one, she could leave the marriage without repercussion, and she was free to remarry. Again, this does not sound like women's rights in our day, but in that day, it allowed a woman to leave a, a, a bad marriage and gave her legal permission to remarry. It was designed, really, for the protection of women. So a big debate on the issue of divorce and remarriage erupted in Jesus' day. And this was not a debate between the, the, the middle, reasonable people. This was a debate between the extremists. And have you noticed that a lot of debates end up being debates between the extremes? And in this case, it was two extreme rabbis. And the debate uh, grew out of different interpretations of a passage that we read earlier, Deuteronomy 24, 24, that says a man can write a certificate of divorce if he marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds, quote, something indecent about her. What does that mean, something indecent about her? And there were two schools of thought led by two famous rabbis. Rabbi Shammai said something indecent about her means sexual immorality, and that is the only grounds for divorce. Only sexual immorality. It's the only time someone can be divorced. Rabbi Hillel had a broader interpretation that something indecent could mean anything at all. Uh, could range from adultery to flirting in public to burning a husband's meals. These were all court cases in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, talking too loudly, decorating the master bedroom with frilly feminine colors. Um, the last one I added, but the other ones are all actually case studies. Any, any cause divorce. This is any cause, any reason, any cause divorce. Which school of thought do you think became the most popular? The any cause divorce ruled the day. In Matthew chapter 19, this is after the Sermon on the Mount, 
after Jesus gives the sermon, he's approached by some Pharisees, and we read the encounter in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, It says, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? What they're really asking is, which school of thought do you subscribe to? Are you with Rabbi Shammai or with Rabbi Hillel? What they're trying to do is get Jesus to alienate himself from some of his followers. This was a big public debate in Jesus' day, and no matter what he says, some people are going to be mad. And their plot runs even worse than that. There was kind of a famous guy who got a divorce right around this time, a guy named Herod, King Herod. King Herod was married, but he fell for somebody else, a woman who was also married. By the way, this other woman was married to Herod's brother. So Herod gets an any-cause divorce from his wife. He has her get an any-cause divorce from her husband, and then Herod marries his sister-in-law. Now John the Baptist stood up to Herod. He said right to Herod in front of a lot of people, Uh, John the Baptist said, it is not lawful for you, Herod, to have this woman as your wife. John the Baptist stood up to Herod in public. Anybody remember what happened to John the Baptist? I see see hand motions in the room. Uh, John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. And now the Pharisees are hoping the very same thing will happen to Jesus. They didn't come to Jesus to get his wisdom about divorce and remarriage. This is a sting operation of the first order. They've come to trap him. Jesus will not get pulled into this debate of his day. He instead goes all the way back to Genesis. And he says, recorded in Matthew 19, 4, Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh therefore what God has joined together let no one separate Jesus chooses not to talk about divorce but to talk about marriage Jesus affirms God's original intent that marriage is a one flesh union for a lifetime. He affirms that men and women are both created in the image of God. And he says the two will become one flesh. Maybe this might be him addressing polygamy. That the two, two will become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one separate. But the Pharisees will not be satisfied with that answer. That's not convictable. They draw him back to the debate of the day. They say in verse 7, Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They want to argue from Deuteronomy, not from Genesis. And they're twisting words. Did Jesus command a divorce? No. They're they're embellishing words to trap Jesus. Moses did not command divorce. Moses permitted divorce, and there's a big difference. Jesus replied, verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because, why? Your hearts were hard. Your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. 
The key diagnostic phrase here is that hardness of heart phrase. In the Greek, it's a single compound word. First part is cardia, right, for heart, like, like cardiac arrest or cardiovascular, cardia, cardia. And the second word is sclero, like from uh, sclerosis, a hardening, a toughening, what once was flexible and pliable and soft has now become inflexible. Hardness of heart has been a problem for the human race ever since the fall. Hardness of heart can kill a marriage. It can destroy a friendship. It can destroy a church. The reason Moses permitted divorce is because of the hardness of heart of people. It was a concession to hardness of heart. In our day, the most common reason given for divorce is incompatibility. I love what G.K. Chesterton writes, great Christian author. He says, if people can be divorced for incompatibility, I cannot conceive why all of us are not divorced. He says, I've known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. He says, the whole aim of marriage is to fight through and survive the instant when incompatibility becomes certain. Right? Even the word compatible is kind of an interesting word. It comes from com, meaning with, and patible from, from pathos, meaning to suffer. To suffer with. Sometimes marriage goes really well and it's really fun. And there are some times when marriage feels a little bit like suffering. But we will go through this together. Jesus finally lands in verse 9. He gives them what they're looking for. Jesus says, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Jesus declares himself on the issue. He is not in the camp that says husbands can turn out their wives for every and any reason. It's not okay to be casual about marriage. The marriage vows are to be taken quite seriously. God's intent for the human race is for marriage to be a lifelong loving relationship. And of course, he is providing for women here, protections for women in his culture. Having said that, we are fallen people who live in a fallen world. We are people who have hard hearts, and sometimes marriage does not last. Sometimes marriages cannot be saved. And we need to be extraordinarily compassionate on this. So let me say a few pastoral words uh, to a few groups that might be present this morning. If you are being physically abused or threatened, you need to remove yourself from danger immediately. Sometimes these words of Jesus and these words of the Old Testament intended to protect women, these very words have been used to keep women in dangerous situations. Let, let it not be so. Jesus cares about you and about your well-being. I'm not saying you need to get divorced tomorrow. You can sort that out over time, but you need to get to a safe place today. Emotional abuse can be every bit as devastating to the human soul as physical abuse, much harder to diagnose. And if you're not sure if that's you, you can talk to somebody on our staff or a counselor. If you're not sure how to exit an abusive situation, we can actually help you. Our pastors can walk you through the process. We have more experience with this than I wish we did. And there's hope for you. 
To those of you who know the pain of divorce personally, let me say what I hope you already know, and that is you are welcome here. And whether you assess your divorce to be on biblical grounds or on non-biblical grounds, doesn't really matter. You are welcome here. The grace of God can cover all things. And I'm so glad to be part of a church that figured this out early on. Uh, you may know our history, that back in the 1970s, uh, Ward Church was one of the very first churches in the country to offer divorce recovery programs. It gets pretty common today, but back in that day, it was not uh, Ward was one of the first churches in the country to offer divorce recovery and open its doors in a big way to people who knew the pain of divorce. Listen, our whole church, our whole church is made up entirely of broken people, married and single, who rely and depend upon the grace of God. To those of you that are married, I want to encourage you to invest in your marriage. Do not take it for granted. You've heard about the marriage conference coming up this next month. It's the weekend after Valentine's Day. You might be tempted to skip it because of time or because of finances or because of competing priorities, but please find a way to invest in your marriage. We're often more intentional in other areas of our lives, right? People will pay a financial planner to help them with their retirement. Uh, they will pay for a gym membership to help them with their body. They will hire a golf coach to help them with their swing. What if we got as intentional about our marriages? What if we invested in relationship counselors and coaches? What if we learned new communication skills? What if we became students of our spouse and learned how they think? Angie and I are hosting this conference, the Love and Respect Conference, February 21, 22, Friday night, Saturday morning kind of deal, and I hope that a lot of you uh, married or, or, uh, or soon to be married will join us uh, that weekend. David Instone Brewer has written extensively on the topic of divorce and remarriage, and it's excellent, and if you can Google search his name, David Instone Brewer, B-R-E-W-E-R, -E -E lots of YouTube videos and books on this topic. And his writings helped me to see something I had never noticed before in the Bible. He says, do you know who the most significant divorced person in the Bible is? Who's the most significant divorced person in the whole Bible? I might have said that it was the, the Samaritan woman at the well. If you remember the story, she says she's got five, she had five husbands. Maybe she's the one. But David Instone Brewer says uh, she is the second most significant divorced person in the Bible. The main picture God uses to describe his relationship with the human race is that it is a covenant, much like a marriage. And you know that people, that, that Israel and now the church is, is the bride and that God, Jesus, is the groom. And then God makes this statement through the prophet Jeremiah. I had never noticed this before. God says, through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 3.8, God says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because all her adulteries. God is the most significant divorced person in the Bible. God knows the pain of going through a divorce. David Instone Brewer says, God is a divorcee and hates divorce as much as any victim of divorce. 
So God invented the first divorce recovery program. It's at a place called Calvary. And the price for the course is one blood-stained cross. And Jesus paid it. We've all been unfaithful to God. We all need the cross. We all need grace. And healing and restoration really is possible. Would you bow and pray with me? God, we come as your children, broken vessels, and yet called to holy living. Give us the power to live as you intend. Help us to be people of truth and grace. Father, we are aware of the pain that exists among us today on this issue of divorce. We pray your grace and power all over this. To attempt to speak about divorce is to risk misinterpretation and the opening of wounds. And I pray that this sermon, as incomplete as it is, might be used by your spirit to bring healing or conviction or hope. We thank you again for the words of Jesus. And most of all, we thank you for your amazing grace that covers and restores. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said.